Welcome to the 76th episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean Podcast. This is David Helvarg, and my co-host is Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Hello there. So today we're happy to be talking with David Schiffman, a marine conservation biologist with Arizona State University, and as a science communicator, an engaging voice for sharks in the ocean on social media outlets like Southern Fried Science, in various publications, including as a regular columnist for Scuba Diving Magazine, and now is the author of a new book, Why Sharks Matter. So David, welcome. I've always loved diving in what I call shark-enhanced, not infested waters. <laughs> Enjoying the, enjoy the presence of our evolutionary elders. So uh, tell us about your own evolution. I understand your focus on sharks started early, but far from the ocean as a child in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Yeah. Well, thank you both for having me. I'm excited to chat with you here today. Uh, like a surprisingly high number of marine biologists, I grew up actually pretty far from the ocean. And there's something about it when you don't see it every day that it makes it sort of extra magical in your imagination. Not that there's anything wrong with people who do grow up seeing the ocean every day, but of the team of scientists that I work with, we have folks from Indiana, from Illinois, I'm from Western Pennsylvania, we have someone from Ohio. Uh, so. Yeah, I, I've been interested in the ocean and interested in sharks as long as my family can remember. And even growing up far from the ocean, it was relatively easy to learn more. I've got every book I could find out of the library. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time over at the Pittsburgh Zoo's shark tank, and I just got to go back there and give a talk in front of the shark tank about the books. So that was pretty cool. <laughs> so is uh, sharks or dinosaurs? Yeah, so I I was uh, like like many kids. Uh, I went through uh, a shark thing and the dinosaur thing, and I I had to choose one at some point. I had maybe a couple hundred dinosaur toys when I was little. I knew all the scientific names as well as the shark stuff, and I decided I'd rather be spending my time on a boat in the tropics trying to stop species from going extinct than in the deserts of Montana trying to understand why species went extinct. So with a love for, for sharks and, of course, a love for the ocean being so far inland, I can totally relate to that being the founder of the Inland Ocean Coalition. Yeah. You talk about why sharks matter. So tell us, why do sharks matter? Yeah, well, predators help keep the food web in balance. And ocean and coastal food webs are provide food security for billions of humans, including many of the poorest humans on Earth, and provide employment and job security and livelihoods for tens of millions of humans, including many of the poorest humans on Earth. We want to have healthy oceans and coasts, and part of that is protecting the food web and making sure the food web is intact. And a big part of that is making sure that the top of the food web is intact. Because when you lose predators, it can have these ripple effects that lead to all sorts of unpredictable and sometimes quite bad consequences. And where was your first live encounter my, with a shark? My first wild shark probably would have been in the Florida Keys. Uh, I spent a lot of time going to sea camp on Big Pine Key. Uh, I went there as a camper for five summers and then later returned as a counselor uh, there for and, and taught the shark bio class for two summers. And I spent a lot of time snorkeling there. I took the shark biology class there as a camper. And I probably would have been a nurse shark in Florida. That would have been one of my first sharks that I ever saw. But also saw bonnet heads out there. There are occasionally small lemon sharks. There are sandbar sharks on one of the reefs. Uh, Caribbean reef sharks are quite common at one of the reefs out there. So it almost certainly would have been in the Florida Keys. 
So everyone knows and loves sharks, or they completely fear sharks, and they all walls and this, that, and the other. So let's get into some basics. So what is what is it that makes a shark a shark and not just a plain old fish? Sure. So what you said to start that, Vicky, was actually a, a really interesting point from a, a public science engagement perspective. I have a good friend who is a seagrass restoration ecologist. And when she gives public talks, she has to start her talks with, this is what seagrass is. You probably have not heard of it. And I don't have to do that as a shark person. Everyone knows about sharks. A lot of what they know is wrong. A lot of what's wrong is harmful. So that's certainly challenging from a public science education perspective. But people know what a shark is. So what makes a shark different from other fish? And they are, they are fish. I get that question a lot. Are they mammals? Are they reptiles? Are they their own thing? They are fish, but they're a different kind of fish from something like a tuna or a goldfish or a bass. Uh, those are the so-called bony fishes. Their skeletons are made out of bone, like ours. The sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras, their skeletons are made out of cartilage, which is what's in our nose and ears. So it's lighter than bone, it's more flexible than bone, and it heals faster, but it's not as strong. So the cartilaginous fishes are the sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras. And uh, they're a really diverse group. Some of them are quite small. The biggest fish on Earth is a whale shark. Um, and that could be the size of a school bus. The smallest species of sharks are smaller than your forearm when they're full grown. So yeah, they, they live under Arctic ice. They live in the deepest part of the ocean where it's so dark that sunlight never reaches. They live in some cases up rivers or in lake systems. So they're, they're just an incredibly diverse and biodiverse group of animals. And going back to your childhood uh, obsessions, uh, who's been around longer, sharks or dinosaurs? Oh, it's not even close. Sharks are so ancient that there were sharks swimming in the ocean, not only before there were dinosaurs on land, but before there were trees on land. There were sharks swimming in the ocean before there were rings around Saturn. Uh, this is a this is an ancient group of animals. It's one of some of the earliest vertebrates looked an awful lot like sharks. You are such a fun writer to read. Oh, thank you. And and your sense of humor is really, really neat. <clears throat> and we were talking about, you know, sharks have been along a very, very long time. And I'm sure that has something to do with their sex lives and their mating and how they have little ones. So ju- let's jump into that because I find it fascinating. Sure. And you can you can say baby shark. It's okay. I, I know if, if anyone uh, has anyone listening has kids or grandkids or nieces or nephews, I'm sure you've heard the baby shark song. Uh, interested. There's some interesting things about that that we can get into later if we have time, but that song's over 100 years old. It's not just this new version that everyone's heard of. Sharks are, generally speaking, really, really, really well adapted to a set of environmental conditions that have been around for, for hundreds of millions of years and are not really there anymore because of humans. But part of that is their reproductive strategy. They're what are called K-selective, and what that means is compared to something like a tuna that spawns. Uh, They don't do that. They have internal fertilization. When you watch shark mating, you can very much recognize what you're looking at. They have relatively few babies, relatively late in their lives, relatively infrequently. But those individual babies are much more likely to survive than an individual sperm or egg released in a tuna spawn. So they put more energy into each individual animal, uh, each individual baby, 
and that results in babies that are really, really well adapted. They're basically miniature sharks when they're born. They don't, sharks don't have parental care. So as soon as a shark is born, it has to just go take care of itself and be a shark. Okay. And we recognize what's going on when a male and female shark are together. Yes. It's a little, it's a little rougher than, uh, most human activity. Also, it, it is. Uh, female sharks have skin that's up to twice as thick as males because of how rough shark mating is. But uh, sharks have, have internal fertilization and external genitalia, unlike other fishes, where it's off, like if you were to look at a yellowfin tuna, you would have a really hard time being able to tell if it was a male or a female from the outside. But with a shark, you can. But now we human males have only one member. We don't have a spare. Tell, tell us what the shark got. Yes. Yeah, so male sharks have paired fins that are called, uh, modified fins that are called claspers. And which one they use is basically based on which side of the female shark they're on. Snakes have a similar, a similar setup. Imagine getting to all the trouble of finally successfully pinning down a 15 foot long female shark and uh, you're, you're on the wrong side and can't reach. So that would be, uh, that would be bad news. And that's why they have two. I did, uh, during my PhD, we brought a lot of middle school and high school students out to do a day of shark research with us. And it was always really funny trying to, to tell these high school students how to tell a boy shark from a girl shark. And they would say like, I'm looking and I, I don't see anything, but maybe that means it's there. No, if it's there, you can see it. And tell us about, I think there's something really quite creative. So after some sharks mate, the females will maintain the sperm for a while, depending on conditions. So like, how does she know and how does she decide and give us all of the fascinating information about that topic. Yeah. So as I mentioned, mating is extremely violent and energy intensive. And what that means is you don't want to waste the opportunity, but sometimes for whatever reason, a female has gone through mating and she just isn't in a good place right now to be having babies for whatever reason. And instead of just letting the mating events and all the energy and time go to waste, instead she can just store the sperm from the mating event inside her body and then later at a time of her choosing become pregnant. And the record for this is just under four years for between a mating event and when the shark used the stored sperm. That is uh, a Isn't that crazy? Yeah. It is. And then there's like, that's not the end of it. There's different gestations and a quarter. There's, there's all Wait. kinds of diversity in where baby sharks come from. Yes, yeah, some sharks give live birth just like mammals do, uh, some sharks lay eggs. If you've heard of a mermaid's purse, a, a sort of weirdly shaped egg case washed up on the beach, those are sometimes skate eggs, uh, sometimes shark. Some sharks have a weird mix of that, uh, where the egg hatches inside the mother and then is born as if live birth. Some sharks can clone themselves. Uh, if female shark wants to become pregnant, there's not a suitable daddy shark around, so she just becomes pregnant. And instead of the babies being a mix of the DNA of mom and dad, they're clones of mom. So there's an enormous amount of diversity, but they are all that they all have this case selection, this relatively few babies, relatively infrequently. And then there's the case that fascinates and scares many in the Shark Week type community of in utero cannibalization. Yeah, there are that is known, uh, I believe, only in one species of sharks, though it may well happen in others. Um, that's sand tigers, and that is all of the embryo sharks inside the mom. Uh, try to eat each other, and only one is born from each uterus. Wow, that's a lot of sibling and... Yeah, whatever you've got going on with your siblings, at least they didn't literally eat you. 
<laughs> that can be refreshing for some people. So you said sharks once they are do you, do you say they're born or babies born or what do you what's born hatched? It depends. Uh, baby sharks are called pups, which I always love. Some people call them sharklings. That's not really a scientific term, but it's adorable. Uh, my my colleague at Arizona State, Dr. James Sulikowski, they study poor beagle sharks, and his team calls the baby poor beagles pork chops. Uh, I always loved that. So that is that is not yet a scientific term, but James is working on it. Uh, but I, I I do like the pork chops. Although if it's a pork beagle, puppies really makes more sense. Or- oh, yes. <laughs> so once the shark babies are born or hatched or whatever they are, how long does it take for them to reach their mature size, their breeding abilities? It varies pretty widely, but we're talking about a long time. Like in some cases, I would say the median shark, the typical average shark, about the same as a human. Uh, so they're teenagers when they're reproductively mature adults, unlike a tuna where it's two or three years. And in the in the tropics, many of them need mangrove forests and other habitats to survive. That's the nursery area concept, which is when sharks are little, they will grow up inside this special place that is tends to be shallow. It tends to be close to shore. It has a lot of little food that their little mouths are perfect at grabbing, and it has protection from predators. So sometimes that's mangroves, sometimes that's bays and estuaries. We've actually discovered a, a nursery area for critically endangered great hammerhead sharks in uh, Biscayne Bay, which is basically greater Miami. It's surprising to see animals right there in one of the most urbanized waterways in the world. All the more reason to protect these special coastal habitats. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's 400, 500 million years of evolution and suddenly in the last century, all that evolutionary drama's gotten more dramatic. Yes. I don't think it'll be a surprise if I say, where are the impact? We humans are having tremendous impact on sharks. Uh, what's What's going on there? Yeah. So we are the number one threat to sharks by far, so much so that there's functionally not a number two threat. People ask me about what about plastic pollution? If we totally solve plastic pollution, which we should do because it's a a real problem for a lot of animals, but don't solve overfishing, sharks are still in big trouble. If we totally solve overfishing and don't solve the plastic pollution crisis, sharks are going to be doing fine. The number one threat to sharks and their relatives, which are one of the most threatened groups of vertebrate animals in the world, by far, is unsustainable overfishing. It's us, it's humans, we're killing them, uh, both on purpose for targeted fisheries for shark fin soup, which many people have heard of, and for targeted fisheries for shark meat, which many people have not heard of, as well as bycatch, which is unintentionally catching something when it just happens to be swimming near when you're trying to catch it. Both are big problems for sharks. Um, I want to talk a little bit about shark finning because people have heard about it, they've seen photographs of it. But as far as the the entire take of sharks, is it primarily for the fins or is it more of a an even distribution for the meat? Give us a little insight on that topic. Yeah. So shark finning is a really, 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 really misunderstood and misused term within, I would say, ocean conservation enthusiasts, people who are not professional environmental activists, but they care about the ocean. They want to help. So shark finning is erroneously and harmfully used as a synonym for killing any shark using any method for any reason. And that's not correct. It is a specific fishing practice 
where fishermen catch a shark, cut the fins of that shark off at sea, and discard the carcass of the shark at sea. That is obviously a problem. It is unsustainable. You're wasting 95% of the animal. It's inhumane. The, the sharks are often still alive when this happens, and then they'll bleed to death or drown. And it's bad from a data data perspective because you don't know what species are involved if you just land a pile of fins not connected to anything. But it's also not happening that much anymore. And there can be shark fins made for or provided to the market for shark fin soup without shark finning taking place. And that has been much of the focus of the last 20 years of environmental advocacy. And it's really, really frustrating when people say, oh, this is obviously a huge loophole. No, it's not. It was the goal. Uh, we were trying to get it so that the whole shark is used and to restrict the total numbers of sharks being used and saying there should not be shark fin soup was not a part of the environmental agenda for the last 30 years. And it's really frustrating to see people just sort of struggling, stumbling into this space and concluding that everyone working on this space for decades is an idiot rather than misunderstanding what the goal was. One thing that drives me totally insane with the misuse of this is there are these goofy online petitions that you see on Facebook all the time from change.org in particular is a big offender because they're affiliated with Facebook. And there was one last year that said, sign this petition to ban shark finning in Florida. And it got 60,000 signatures. And not one of those people apparently realized that we banned shark finning in Florida in 1994. This is a petition that cannot possibly do anything to help sharks because its stated goal was accomplished before the person who wrote the petition was born. All it does is confuse people about what the threat is and what the solutions are to those threats and make them think they've done something to help when all they're doing is giving their email address to a viral marketing company. So if if you want to learn and understand more about sharks and the threats and the varieties, uh, you should watch Shark Week, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> shark week and i are not besties uh shark we actually just i've been called a shark week's biggest critic by some media outlets i don't know if that's true but certainly uh i i do not recommend it as a source of educational uh information we actually just completed a study of where we had some poor undergraduates watch all of shark week ever and write down what is in it where do they go? Which experts are featured? What are they trying to do? What tools do they use? Uh, what species are featured? And it is worse than I feared. There's just so much nonsense and so much of a missed opportunity. If they just say things that are just blatantly wrong every 10 minutes, and it's, it's stuff that I knew was wrong when I was eight, and you, we all have an eight-year-old in our lives who knows enough about sharks to know that some of this is wrong. Can sharks smell your blood? Yeah, and well enough to tell that you're not a fish. Uh, you very rarely hear in these really, really rare cases where sharks do buy people, you very rarely hear a case of someone saying, I was bleeding and decided to go in the ocean anyway, and a shark found me. That's just not how it happens. If you are actively bleeding, you should not go in the ocean because of bacteria, not because of sharks. There are some nasty bacteria that live in the ocean that your immune system is not used to, and if you have an open wound that's actively bleeding, you should seek medical attention and not expose yourself to novel pathogens. You cannot believe how often I have to say that to, to grown-up adults. But safe, safe behavior is essentially don't feed the sharks, don't use lures and baits. Yeah, don't be an idiot. You wouldn't do that with a bear. I, I, people just, I don't understand people. There are people who kiss sharks. They go scuba diving, a shark swims by them, they grab the shark, 
They put the bitey end of the shark on their face. And then what? someone got bitten doing that. And that's reported as a shark attack. And it's national news. Scuba diver bitten by the shark on the face. Like, huh, I wonder how that happened. These are uh, not Einsteins who do these things. And what are some of the important things that are happening for shark conservation with IUCN listings, with biodiversity conference that just happened? Yes. So a really important meeting that just happened is called CITES, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species. That was last fall in Panama. It rotates locations every three years. And a really cool thing happened there that I think is going to revolutionize global shark conservation. And a lot of people think that too. It's somewhat technical, and I'll try to explain it as quickly as I can. But CITES governs international trade in, in various listed species. And what this new appendix means is that species that represent about 90% of the global shark fin trade are now listed under CITES Appendix 2. And what that means is if a country wants to sell fins of that shark species to another country, they now need to make sure that their fishery that provided the shark fins is sustainable and certify that it is, or they're not allowed anymore. So which of those outcomes is good for sharks? Either one. Right now, there's a lot of unrestricted trade that an unsustainable overfishing is, again, the biggest threat. But with these new CITES listings, if a country wants to sell shark fins internationally, they need to either make their fisheries sustainable or they can't. And either of those is a better situation for most shark species than we have now. How can our listeners and people support that? What are some of the things that we can do? For CITES listings, there's really nothing you can do. Uh, for There are a lot of things that individuals can do to help sharks, but a lot of the, a lot of the big stuff happens sort of between international political appointees. And you have, so voting matters. Maybe don't vote for parties that despise science and mock conservation. But in terms of individual decisions that people can make, don't support unsustainable seafood practices. Notice I did not say we all have to give up all seafood or else the ocean is going to die. If you like seafood like I do, get sustainable seafood. So Why Sharks Matter just came out? Uh, Why Sharks Matter came out about six months ago, uh, and I just completed a 50-city book tour around the world. Uh, so I got to travel all over talking to people about sharks. It was absolutely awesome. I loved it. Uh, I'm still doing uh, public talks about it all over the world, just not at the same pace. Uh, so if anyone's interested in having me out there uh, where you are to come talk about sharks, reach out. Why, again, why sharks matter on every social media platform you can imagine. And I've been thrilled with the reception so far. And how many species of sharks are there? I mean, they seem pretty amazing from tiny cat sharks to whale sharks and everything in between. Um, some yeah. beautiful so the latest issue of the latest edition of Sharks of the World says that there are 536 known species of sharks, but that's already out of date and there's already more than that. There's a new species of shark skate ray or chimera discovered somewhere in the world about every two weeks. Wow. Uh, so the best reference for this that's out there is 536, but there, but with an asterisk that there are more and nor discovered all the time. That's amazing. And a lot of those are weird little deep sea cat sharks. And I love those too. But a lot, there's a staggering amount of shark species. Uh, if you, if you uh, uh, look through sharks of the world, they, that say known only from a single specimen. Uh, that means we've only seen one ever. And that's enough to describe a species, but it's not enough to know a whole lot about how it lives its life. 
So are there like sharkers, like birders who like go around the oceans trying to count every shark species they've ever spotted? Uh, so I count every shark species I've ever spotted and I just got to 57 last year. So a little more than 10%, but there are uh, not, there are, most people have never seen the vast majority of these species because some of them live where people can't go. There are some people who work on describing new shark species and they, you don't see, a, you see a, basically a dead one in a jar when that's the case. So the color fades uh, that you can't tell anything about their behavior or their ecology. Uh, but there, I have not heard of anything like, uh, like sharkers, but that's, there certainly are shark biodiversity themed scuba trips that you can do. Uh, there's one that goes off West Africa. There's one that goes off Japan. Um, there's one in Indonesia. So some real biodiversity hotspots that where you can be pretty likely to see some weirdos that you won't see other places. Uh, the technical term for that would be endemic. Uh, that an endemic species is one that lives in a place and only lives in that place. You can own, it's the only place in the world where you can find it. Uh, I think weirdo is just as good of a, de, a, a term for it, but. <laughs> and, and so you've just come off a 50 city tour. For yes. Why sharks matter your new book. What are you looking to do shark wise in the coming year or so? Yes. Yeah, so I am, I am teaching a new class for graduate students at Nova Southeastern university in Florida. Uh, and it's going to include for uh, it's going to include uh, six days out on the boat where they're going to practice being shark scientists and get to see some sharks and help work up some sharks. Uh, I work with an organization called Field School, getintothefield.com, um, and they do uh, safe and inclusive uh, marine science field education, and they have shark science training courses every summer, and I'm going to work with them to, to do one of those. So I'm going to be maybe two weeks out in the field this year, uh, which is not as much as I'd like, but more than I got last year. The problem with doing this interdisciplinary and policy and communications work, I love it and I find it very rewarding and it's a way where I can contribute and see results in terms of making the ocean a better place for sharks. Uh, but it means I don't see sharks as often as I'd like. I just want to say, and I, I'm sure David feels the same way, that we are delighted that your book came out, that you have so much interesting knowledge to share and that you do it in a really fun and interesting way. And we just thank you for all of your work in the field of shark conservation and biology and knowledge. And thank you so much for being on the Rising Tide Ocean Podcast. Well, thanks for having me. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier, co-hosted by David Helberg and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein, with support from Natasha Benjamin and Ellie Kerlock. Rising Tide's editing services and technical support is provided by Studio Kate May. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbard. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast at bluefront.org or download it from Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves roll free The sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear It's true, it's the blue frontier Tear, tear, Off in the salty ocean, off to the blue frontier Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.